Good morning, everybody. Reading 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no, no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Well, today is such an exciting day in the life of a church, as we've just been hearing. Later on, Joel and Anara are going to be baptised, because they've never been baptised before. And we'll also hear Asa and Tim and Marietta and Cesare owning their own baptism that happened so many years ago when they were children. And some of you are here today just to support them, and it's fantastic that you're here along, even, even if you don't actually agree with the things that they agree with. I think baptism is an excellent thing, but I also think it's a pretty strange thing. A symbolic religious ceremony where you dunk someone underwater in the middle of winter in a kiddie pool, which we'll see out the back in a minute, you've got to admit that's a little bit weird, right? And even if you get the symbolism and, and, and you understand what it points to, it doesn't really make it less strange. In fact, it makes it worse. Think about what it is that baptism points to. It points to Jesus' death on the cross in our place. 
So it points to every wrong thing that we've ever done being washed away by Jesus' death so that we can stand before God perfectly clean, perfectly accepted by him. That's what it points to. That's a big part of what it points to, Jesus' death. But there's more to baptism. The other part of what it symbolizes is our death. Baptism symbolizes dying to living for yourself and instead living for Jesus. A guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who actually died resisting Hitler, he once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Or a minister called Sam Albury, who visited Adelaide a couple of years ago, when he was here, he said to us, baptism is about burial. You need to make sure someone is dead before you bury them. That's pretty good advice, I reckon. (laughs) So think about it. Today we've got six young people who are going to be standing up here in a minute and publicly saying, I'm dead to living for me. My life is found fully in Christ. My future, my hope, it's in Jesus who died for me. Now that just seems a bit foolish, doesn't it? Shouldn't they see a bit of the world first? Shouldn't they discover themselves first? Shouldn't they experiment and live a little first? Think about what they're signing themselves up to. To live for Jesus means that they're giving up being mainstream. They're giving up mainstream ideas about happiness and the meaning of life, mainstream ideas about sexuality. They're saying, for me, life is not all about doing whatever makes me happy. Life's not about family. It's not about collecting experiences. It's not all about work or anything else, it's all about Jesus. In other words, they're giving up things that are are virtually sacred in our culture and instead they're signing their lives fully over to Jesus, a man who lived an awfully long time ago in a world that feels very different to ours, whose way of life led him to a pretty awful end on the cross. Is this foolishness? Surely it would be wiser for them to say, why not have a little bit of spirituality on the side if you want it, but not go all in? Because let's be honest, the whole message feels a bit foolish to many people. Jesus, a man being God who dies for his people, it feels unrealistic, unscientific, unimpressive. And I reckon if we took a survey right now of, of a TTP, well... Surely most people would agree that it's foolish for them to give their lives to Jesus so completely. So why is it that Joel and Ara and Tim and Asa and Marietta and Cesare, why is it that they think differently and and most of us here think differently? Well, that's exactly what that part of the Bible that Christine just read for us is explaining. It's what it was talking about. It explains why it is that some of us can look at the cross and think it's unimpressive, whereas others can look at it and just think it's amazing. It explains it from God's point of view, why it is that different people react differently. So we're going to have a a little bit of a closer look at what this part of the Bible says today. And this is the first thing to notice as we do that. Christ and Him crucified, it doesn't fit with human wisdom. That's what we see in this part of the Bible. Christ and Him crucified just doesn't fit with human wisdom. 
Let me give you a bit of a context to this part of the Bible so that you can see what's going on. A leader in the early church called Paul is writing to followers of Jesus in a place called Corinth. You can see a map up there of the Mediterranean and Corinth is in Greece. You can see some ruins of the city just here. It's around 53 AD, which means that Paul's writing to these Christians in Corinth about 20 years after Jesus had died. Corinth, it was a Roman colony and it prided itself on being different to the kind of neighbouring area. They thought the locals were kind of like country hicks and they were elite, more impressive than them. And even within the city, there was a strong culture of trying to be more impressive than other people there. Everyone was trying to climb up the social ladder and everyone was trying to be impressive to everyone else. And in this church in the city of Corinth, they were behaving no differently. They were promoting themselves over against each other. They're trying to show that they're more impressive than the others. But Paul, he says this kind of self-promotion is completely incompatible with following Jesus. Last week we saw that Paul says they've actually misunderstood the central message of Christianity. The central message of Christianity is not about trying to look good and trying to outdo each other. It's not about trying to look wise in human eyes. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Look at verse 1, where Paul talks about the first time he met them, the first time he came to the city and told them about Jesus. He says, When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Paul reminds them about his first time there when he was telling them about Jesus and he wasn't trying to look good in their eyes. His goal wasn't to make them think how fantastic he was so that they'd listen to him because he was so great. His goal was to simply communicate to them the central message of Christianity. And look at verse 2 where we see this message. He says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the central message right there. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now think about how that central message of Christianity would have sounded to them. Paul is saying to them, let me tell you about the King that God wants you to follow. Your Roman leaders, Pontius Pilate, They killed him on a cross. Now, this must have sounded ridiculous to them. It'd be like me saying, all right, let me tell you about the king God wants you to follow. He was killed by Donald Trump in an electric chair in America. I mean, it's slightly believable because it's Donald Trump, but it just doesn't sound like a very impressive message. It sounds stupid. It sounds foolish. Who would want to follow someone who was killed like that? So you've got Paul, an unimpressive man, bringing an unimpressive message in an unimpressive manner. Look at verse 3. He says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Paul's point is that he didn't try to dress this message up in fancy language or with impressive sounding arguments. He spoke only about Jesus and he only did it in a way that pointed to Jesus, not to himself. And he simply told them the facts. Jesus God's chosen king had died and risen again for them and he really is the Lord and saviour of the world. But here's the thing, rather than Paul's message falling flat, 
like you might expect, people actually believed the message and saw something life-changing in it. And they did what Joel and Anara and Asa and Tim and Marietta and Cesaria are going to be doing today. And we read why in verse 4. Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. They responded because of the Spirit's power. Now, this isn't talking about some miraculous sign, by the way, because just a few verses earlier, Paul wrote in chapter 1, Jews demand signs, miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified. Some people demanded miraculous signs, but what they got instead was Paul just sticking to the central message. They got him talking about Christ and him crucified. And some of them saw the wisdom of his message. But think about the things that we might consider human wisdom. They're very different to that. We might say today, show me a science experiment that proves that God exists and that Jesus rose again. Or we might say, show me a mass equation that demonstrates that God's active in the world, or or show me God right now in front of my eyes. That's the kind of human wisdom that we'd value. Or human wisdom for us might mean, show me how it will benefit, benefit me, show me how it will make me happy, how it will give me what I want, how it's impressive and it will make me impressive. Or human wisdom might say to us, show me who else believes it. What sports stars? What academics? What scientists? Which of my family members believe this? What celebrities? Now, if we could see these things, then we'd be impressed and maybe we'd believe. But Paul's point is that what we'd be believing wouldn't actually be the central message of Christianity at all. We'd actually be missing the message entirely. Because if anyone talks about the the cross in a way that takes the spotlight off Jesus, they've missed the message. They're communicating the opposite of the message. Because we might be tempted to think it's worth believing because they believe it and they're impressive. But the cross is actually the opposite kind of message. It's a message that says impressiveness is not found in human ways of thinking at all. It's a message that says true impressiveness is found in the exact opposite of human ways of thinking. Impressiveness is found in looking weak and foolish. Now, don't get this wrong. The cross is not God thinking, what's the most foolish thing I can do and that's what I'm going to do. Instead, there's a very clear and very powerful logic to the cross. And this is what we see next in our passage. Christ and Him crucified is God's wisdom. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. The cross is a surprising hidden wisdom. It's true wisdom, true power, but it's a complete flipping upside down of what this world considers wisdom. You know, 
we humans, we are a tiny speck on a planet which is a tiny speck in a galaxy that's a tiny speck. Now, I heard on the radio about a galaxy the other day that apparently to travel from its center to its edge would take over two million years if you were traveling at the speed of light. I was just in the car trying not to have an accident, trying to take that in. If you could travel at the speed of light, which you can't do, it would take you two million years. There's just no way we could ever traverse those kind of distances. It's almost impossible to get your head around. And yet, we humans believe that we can reach up and understand and contain within our limited heads the God who made it all. We think our wisdom can discover and and determine the God who stands outside it all. God says here in this passage, human eyes and ears and minds, they'll never lead us to him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived. We can't reach up to God and say, ah, I've discovered you. We'll never know God that way. If we go looking for God with our own wisdom, we'll only ever find a God who's actually limited, just like we are. We'll come up with no God, or we'll come up with a God who's nothing like the real God. And either way, we'll applaud our own wisdom, but we'll actually be demonstrating our own foolishness. The true God refuses to be confined by our restraints, and he refuses to be defined by our understanding of greatness. Instead, God actually chooses to make himself known in the exact opposite way that we'd expect. He makes himself known in what we consider weakness and what we consider foolishness. The Lord of glory is crucified. The Lord of glory is crucified naked, humiliated, in agony for the glory of humans. In a church I used to be in, there was a guy who um, worked for the ABC with kind of voice stuff. And he told me one day in the nicest possible way that he was sick of listening to my voice up the front because he said I mumbled. So he, he offered to um, help me fix that with some sort of voice lessons. It was a strange experience, but totally help, helpful, and it, and it totally worked because I never mumble anymore, so I say something. <laughs> now, in these lessons, I remember I had to read out loud this, um, this uh, part of the Bible that had the voice of God in it, and so I tried to make it sound impressive and kind of loud and God-like, and I remember him saying to me, stop. (laughs) And he said, people of true authority, they don't need to speak loudly or forcefully. They can speak quietly and everyone hears. It made me realize that I have absolutely no authority in my household over my children. (laughs) Because whether I speak quietly or loudly, it doesn't seem to make any difference unless you say the word chocolate and then everyone comes running. People of true authority don't need to speak loudly or forcefully. They don't need to prove to you or to themselves that they have authority. Now, that's true for more than just how they speak. Someone who has true strength and true wisdom doesn't feel the need to prove it to you or to themselves. Someone like that is not afraid of what you think of them. 
They're not afraid of those who'd laugh or scoff or mock. Someone with true strength and true wisdom doesn't feel the need to have you like them so that they feel great or important. Now, God alone is like that. God alone is truly wise and truly strong. He doesn't need to look to us to define greatness or wisdom or strength. Instead, he defines these things and he does it in the very midst of our misunderstanding of them. And this is God's glory. He uses his greatness in the service of others. The Lord of glory is crucified, naked, humiliated, in agony, alone, for the glory of humans. And that's what the cross is. God makes a way that you can be, given, be forgiven for your rejection of him, your self-promotion. God makes a way that you can be forgiven for your failure to serve him and to serve others like you should. He does it by the Lord of glory dying for you. Now, the cross is God pointing out our folly and our weakness, but at the same time, it's God overcoming it. It's God giving us a way that we can be forgiven for our arrogance, and it's God setting us on a far, far better path. That's God's wisdom, and that's God's strength, and it's surprising. We'd never come up with it on our own. We, we can't reach up and, and drag God down to us, but God reaches down and He lifts us up to Him. And he does that by his spirit. This is the final thing we see today in this part of the Bible. God reveals his wisdom to us by his spirit. Now, why is it that some people look at Jesus on the cross and they think that's foolish? Or they think it's just not that big a deal. But others see the cross and they think that's the king that I want to give up my life for. The answer is the spirit of God. Look at verse 12. Paul says, What we've received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us, what we could never discover for ourselves with our own human wisdom. God reveals to us by his spirit. In verse 14, we read, The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they're, own, they're discerned only through the Spirit. Now, if you can see the wisdom of the cross, it's only because God has given you His Spirit. If you can see the heart of God at the cross, the love of God, the passion of God, it's only because God's Spirit has revealed that to you. If you can see that human power and weakness is is actually arrogance and small-mindedness when confronted with the God who lays all that aside at the cross for the sake of others, then it's only because God's Spirit has shown these things to you. In verse 16 we read, Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? The answer is clearly no one. But the amazing thing is that because of the Spirit we read, but we have the mind of Christ, us, We have the mind of Christ. We can't reach up and and drag God down, but God reaches down to us and lifts us up. And because we have His Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. 
What Paul means by this is that we share Christ's way of thinking. We share his way of seeing things. We see wisdom and power and glory and greatness in the same way that Jesus sees it. We see it in Christ and him crucified. And we shape our lives around that message. This means instead of promoting ourselves and our own importance, we share the mind of Christ when, like him, we're willing to look weak and, like him, we're willing to look foolish for the sake of others. That's Christ's way of thinking. That's true wisdom and that's true spirituality. And like we've seen, it doesn't come from us. It comes from the cross and it comes from God's Spirit opening our eyes to see the wisdom and the power of the cross. So today, are Joel and Anara and Tim and Asa and Marietta and Cesare, are they being foolish giving their lives to Jesus? Well, we have to say, yes, absolutely they are, by human wisdom. But not at all by God's wisdom. God's Spirit has opened their eyes and their ears and their minds to see the wisdom and power of God in Jesus on the cross. And God's Spirit has opened their minds to share the mind of Christ, to see that laying down your life in what looks like weakness and foolishness in the service of God and in the service of others, that's actually true wisdom. That's actually true power. Now, if you're not a a follower of Jesus, then what they're doing, it it might still seem baffling to you today. The cross might still seem baffling. Do you feel like that? Or perhaps you can actually see why Christ crucified is surprisingly true wisdom and true power. Perhaps you can see why God undermining the world's idea of of greatness is actually wisdom. Perhaps you can see why it's it's worth dying to yourself, dying to self-promotion and giving your life over to the one who gave his life for you. Human wisdom will always tell you to fight for your own happiness and joy and meaning But the cross tells you the opposite. It tells you to surrender these things, to surrender them to the one who fights for them on your behalf. Because the reality is you'll never secure them without Jesus. And even if you could get through this life and somehow be the exception, the person who does secure those things, even then, one day, you will face God alone, having rejected him. And on that day, any human wisdom, any human power will be seen for what it really is. Nothing compared to him. In Mark eight thirty five, Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? A guy named Jim Elliot, he paraphrased this and he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You can't keep your life. But if you give it up for Jesus, like these guys are going to do today, then Jesus will keep it for you for all eternity. If you can see the wisdom in that, then that's God prompting you. That's the Holy Spirit prodding you. Listen to him. It's wisdom to listen to God. Do something about it. Give your life to him. 
or investigate it more. Talk to me or, or talk to the person who brought you along. But don't do nothing with that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you, the God of true power, of true wisdom, the creator of a universe that our minds cannot understand in its vastness. Lord, you are spectacular, so glorious, and yet you have opened our minds and our hearts to see your glory beyond anything in all creation, that you would step into your creation And then in Christ Jesus, you would stoop to the cross, setting aside your glory and your greatness for us, to lift us up, that we might know your glory and be glorious in your eyes. Father, that is beyond all comprehension, and you move our minds and our hearts to worship you. Lord, we pray that we you would keep pouring out your Spirit into our lives so that we can keep seeing this truth that we don't discover on our own that we can only see because of your work in our lives. Lord, move us to see your greatness more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.